Our Old Testament reading is taken from Exodus 20, verses 1 to 13. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. Our Gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord, today we're going to reflect upon a commandment that warns us not to take another life. And I suspect that there's a lot of different ways we can take life from one another. Will you teach us? Will you show us the way into more life, into the life of your kingdom? Amen. You shall not murder, or as the King James Bible says, thou shalt not kill. The specific word here, the Hebrew word lo terza, is rarely used in the Bible, and it usually refers to the arbitrary and illegal killing of an individual. And it seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> Don't murder. Of course, it's not always straightforward. For example, when is a police officer simply carrying out their duty? And when did they cross that line into murder? And there are a host of issues on the periphery of this commandment where good Christians will disagree. Issues like war, the death penalty, abortion, euthanasia, vegetarianism, gun control. And even though reflecting upon this commandment has made me reflect on more than one of those issues this week. I'm not going to follow and go down those rabbit trails. I'm going to choose to go deep rather than wide this morning, and I invite you to come along with me. So first, let's look at murder itself. However we define murder, 
It's the ultimate objectification of another human being. It's treating them as an object, as a means to our ends. Whether that's to um, a person to, to impose our, our need for revenge, uh, to give expression to our pleasure principle if we're a serial killer, um, to see this other person as being in the way of my acquiring land or property or even a wife in the case of David. This other person is a means to our ends or an obstacle to our ends. Now, the Bible, in talking about murder, doesn't necessarily focus on what we tend to think about. When someone is murdered, it's hard not to think about a life that's been aborted, uh, a, a person who will never have the experiences that many of us expect as we grow older, um, or just unfulfilled dreams. The Bible focuses more on who that person is. And so, for example, way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, we read, whoever sheds the blood of another human being, by a human being shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made human beings. The person who's being murdered was made in God's image and is the image of God. And as we've talked about what that means over the last year or so, back in Genesis 1 we're told that to be made in God's image is to be made to rule. There's a sense in which killing another human being then is a form of regicide, of killing a ruler, a king, a co-ruler over this world. And, and so it's significant, it's really weighty to kill a ruler. Now, I think there's a lot of different ways we can objectify another human being. And this morning, I invite us not just to think in terms of murder, but any of the ways in which we objectify people. See spouses, kids, parents, our co-workers and friends, our employees, as means to our ends, or as obstacles to what we want or want to achieve. And, and just to ask ourselves, is that how I come to my relationship? Are people means to my ends? Or do I value them as people made in the image of God? Do I see myself as being here to enable them to flourish and to fulfill their God-given destiny? So there's murder itself, a complete objectification of another human being. And then there's what we do with murderers. And that seems pretty straightforward. I just uh, shared a passage from Genesis that says, if you take the life of another, then your life will be taken. And the same thing is stated in uh, Exodus chapter 21, just after the Ten Commandments. In, uh, in verse 12 we read, anyone who strikes someone a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen. They are to flee to a place I will designate. So already we have an exception to the rule. If it's not done intentionally, if it's done by accident, then this person actually is to, to flee to one of the cities of refuge that God has placed throughout Israel. 
Um, and so, but still, it's pretty straightforward. If you intend to kill someone, then your life should be taken. Pretty black and white. But the actual record of the Bible and story of the Bible is much more ambiguous. Let's go back to the very first murder. The Lord says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. Now, I would expect God to say, you're going to be buried under the ground. But instead, he says, you're going to be driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now, you expect to hear God say, that same ground is going to receive your blood. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now, that's a pretty significant penalty, but it's not the death penalty. Now, Cain is obviously in no position whatsoever to negotiate with God. But he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Rather than being grateful that he's not being killed, he's, he's, he's just so, so upset about the fact that he's going to have to wander the earth. Today, you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And God could say, well, uh, if you're going to make your bed, you're going to have to sleep in it. But instead, he says, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So already, here at the beginning of the Bible, we have grace seeping in to the biblical story. Rather than Cain being killed, God says, anyone who kills you will be paid back seven times over. So grace is to be considered when we think about even something as difficult as murder. I know a lot of us struggle with the death penalty. And however we think about this, we need to keep in mind that the Bible itself entertains the aspect of grace. And so that, too, needs to be woven into the discussion. And as far as grace is shown, in terms of it being shown to biblical characters, think Moses. He was a murderer. But somehow it didn't ultimately disqualify him from leading God's people to this very mountain where the commandments are given. David, who many regarded as the greatest king in the history of Israel until Jesus, was a murderer. He committed adultery, he tried to cover it up by having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. He was a murderer. And yet when the prophet Nathan brought all this to David's attention, there's no mention of the death penalty. Oh, there are consequences, both short-term and long-term. But again, grace. Or how about the apostle Paul? He also was a murderer. A murderer of Christians. Jesus even said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whatever you've done to them, you've done to me. And so, at the very least, when we think about this commandment, we need to think not only in terms of, of consequences, but mercy. When we killed the Son of God, 
Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And some of this has to do with, with an ancient Near East understanding of law. Laws weren't absolutes in the way that we tend to see laws today. Um, laws were laid out and sometimes consequences attached to them. But the consequence, rather than being mandated, was an example of how this particular crime or infraction is often treated. But the judge had a lot of discretion as to what they actually did in a particular situation. As Jesus said, um, human beings aren't here for the law. The law is for human beings. And so when he was presented with a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, something in the Old Testament that required theoretically uh, a, the death penalty, he first deals with her prosecutors, gives them something to think about, and then he chooses not to condemn her and sends her on her way. Go and sin no more. That was within his discretion as a judge of Israel. It's a lot of discretion. And I think, at least for me, it's been helpful to think about the penalties that are attached to certain, certain laws and rules as being primarily meant to show us the significance of that law. And so when the death penalty is attached to adultery, for example, in the Old Testament, what it's pointing out is that when someone commits adultery, the potential harm and damage is enormous, not just for that marriage, but that family and the tribe and the whole community. And so let's say uh, uh, there's, there's a child that's conceived, and there's a question of who, whose that child is. That's going to wreak havoc for the family. And then there's the whole issue of inheritance. And, and it's, just, it's just going to create chaos. Does that mean that two people caught in the act of adultery need to be executed? Or is it saying, this is a big deal. This really matters. And so there's grace. And then, thirdly, there's what Jesus does with this commandment, and, and, and that is he radicalizes it. Now, the word radical can mean to you know, push to an extreme. It also can mean to get at the root of things. The word radical literally means to get at the root of things. And Jesus says both of those things in our gospel reading today. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. In other words, the death penalty. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In other words, the death penalty. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, a term of contempt, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And Jewish people believe there was a heavenly Sanhedrin, just as there was a Sanhedrin, a ruling judicial body on earth. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So the, the consequence for murder is, is, is merely the death penalty. The consequence for anger, however we understand that, and however Jesus is, whatever Jesus is meaning by that, is not only an earthly penalty, but a heavenly one. Now Jesus was known often for speaking over the top, sort of a shock and awe way of doing what we've already talked about, talking about a penalty that's meant to put the, the spotlight on what's happening, to point out its significance. And on the one hand, I think Jesus is getting at the root of murder. Often, at the root of murder is some form of anger. 
But he also seems to be saying something more than that. Given the severity of the penalty, he's suggesting that anger itself, nursed, spoken out of, when people name call, it can even be body language, actually historically has likely done much more damage than murder. And it's so important not to make light of anger, not to quickly feel, well, it's justified, or to justify the things that we've said or done because we feel so right and righteous. Jesus, be very careful. Be very careful. Anger can be so destructive. Now, Jesus doesn't explain it. He doesn't explain when anger is appropriate or not appropriate or what we're to do with it exactly, and we're not going to go down that rabbit trail. We don't have time this morning. But I, I'll give you some advice, and that is to go back to the beginning of chapter 5 of Matthew, to those Beatitudes, because I believe they give a process, an eight-step process for dealing with and working through our anger. So check it out. So... Uh, Anger itself, which is at the root of murder quite often and also is a, is a form of murder. It's a form of violence in terms of what it can do to our relationships, what it can do to whole societies. But then there's taking positive action. And that's what Jesus encourages in this Sermon on the Mount, in this passage and also parts as, other parts as well. It's not enough to try to stop yourself from being angry or doing something out of anger, to put up a stop sign, as one person said in a morning gathering this week. We need to do something instead. And what Jesus suggests is, is do just the opposite of what you feel like doing. And so he says, love your enemies. Later in chapter 5 of Matthew, he, he says... Um, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them. And, and it's a reminder that love in the Bible is never just a feeling or an attitude. It's always translated into action. And so Jesus is saying, instead of seeking revenge against your enemy, look for ways to love them, ways to love them, things to do for them. Start with prayer. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, talks about doing, doing good things. Jesus, in, in, his, in, in Luke's gospel, says, feed your enemy. Get really active here and, and become generous. Rather than seeking to take your enemy's life, give them more life, more life than they deserve, certainly what their actions deserve. Give. Give to those who've taken from you. And that generosity is to take the form of forgiveness. And that can be really hard. Jesus actually embeds that form of generosity into that very short and special prayer that he gives to those who have enlisted in the cause of his kingdom. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The root words for forgiveness in the Bible uh, mean to leave and um, also to, uh, to let go, to release. And so we're to leave those things that 
have been done to us behind us. And and we're to release that other person from the debt that they owe us. And in in the Lord's Prayer, we're actually saying, as kingdom warriors, as people who, who are furthering the cause of Christ on earth, Lord, I know this is hard, but this is what I'm saying to you. Don't forgive me unless I have forgiven my brother or sister or enemy. But forgiveness is like love. Just as love needs to take action, forgiveness needs to take action. And that action is actual reconciliation. So Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to that person, and then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation. Is, is the next step. And it's not enough just to forgive and let live and go about our separate lives. The ultimate goal of God is unity. Unity around Jesus. That's the ultimate objective. That's, the, that's what his restoration project is about. It's unity. And I just want to offer this caveat here. You know, reconciliation doesn't always mean going back to the relationship that existed before. It just may not be healthy and good to do that. But it is making some kind of peace with that person. And it may be to go back to the relationship or even to deepen the relationship, or it may be so that each of you can go your separate ways, having made peace with what happened, at peace with one another, so that each of you can fulfill your call and destiny within the broader kingdom. And so there's a lot here. It's not just what we're not to do, you know, not to nurse that anger and speak and act out of anger, not to take another person's life. We're also to be gracious. We're also to uh, be generous. We're also to forgive and even to seek reconciliation. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> that's, it's, it's, that's a lot to think about. It's a lot to carry out. And you would think that we've pretty much covered everything this morning, but we haven't. It's one last thing, and that's prevention. In other words, do whatever you can to prevent another human being from wanting to hurt you, from, from wanting to carry out violence towards you. Jesus talks about this in the very last parable that he told in Matthew's Gospel, this same Gospel where we have the Sermon on the Mount. It's a parable. It's a picture of the Last Judgment. It's a picture of a group of people, actually the, the whole, all people being divided into two groups. And to the first group of people, he says, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I lacked clothing, you clothed me. When I was sick, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the people will say, Lord, I, when did we do those things to you? We don't remember ever feeding you. And he says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Now that's the positive. But then Jesus gives the negative. He turns to the other group of people and says, you know, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me, and so on and so forth. And the people will say, Lord, when 
when did we not feed you? When did we not give you something to drink? When did we not care for you or visit you? And the Lord will say, whatever you fail to do for the least of these, you failed to do for me. And the consequence is eternal punishment. Now, if you've learned anything from our discussion so far this morning, you know that it's important not to put too much emphasis on the consequence. The consequence is, made, is, is put there to put a spotlight on the main issue. We're to do whatever we can to make sure hungry people, people who are in prison, people who don't get adequate health care, don't become violent, don't become reactive, don't do damage to people and property. And, and, and we can easily say, yeah, but Lord, they put themselves in that position. They put themselves in prison. They made poor choices, and that's why they're hungry. But Jesus doesn't say, well, if those people are good enough, then you should feed them. We have a little food pantry in the outside of our church. We don't have a sign that says, if you're good enough, feel free to take from the pantry. In fact, we do have a sign that says, no perfect people allowed. No people... No perfect people allowed to use that food pantry. In fact, no people, perfect people are allowed even to worship in this building. People don't have to be good enough to be helped. The people that Jesus helped and healed and fed weren't good enough. That wasn't a qualification. So I, I even think of the protests today. And we can focus on the looting and the rioting that a very small percentage of people have done. Or we can focus on what is causing people to react so violently. What have they experienced? And unless we address that root issue of racism, then we are guilty of taking life rather than giving it. And so we have the responsibility for prevention, preventing people from being in the position where where they, you know, if, if maybe the food that's in that pantry will get people through a couple of days and make that parent more patient with their kids rather than reactive. A spouse more patient with their spouse. Um, when you're hungry, you're not at your best. And we have a responsibility to make sure that we care for people, to make it less likely that they will be angry and do things they regret later. And all of this is a part of our call. This isn't just stuff we do so that we can get along and so that life can be better for everyone. We're a city on a hill. We're the light of the world. This is just about our own personal happiness. If we take seriously our call as followers of Jesus to be a different kind of society and community within the church, we're going to learn to love each other. And, and a lot of the stuff we've talked about is needed to be able to love one another. And we're going to take what we've learned and we're going to practice it wherever we live, work, play, and learn. That's how we are the salt of the earth. But it's our call. It's our call. And the cross of Jesus Christ is what teaches us how important it is to love one another as he has loved us. Let's pray together.
Father, I pray that you have been able to help us expand our understanding of what it means to take another person's life and to take from another person's life. Show us how to give to one another generously. And for those of us who struggle today with anger or not being able to forgive, who struggle with hoarding what we own, thinking it belongs to me and I don't have to share it, or people have to deserve it, may you correct our thinking, may you circumcise our hearts, may you cleanse us and put a new spirit in us. And now that, may that same spirit help us as we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This song is called Broken Vessels. As we've been talking about anger this morning, I wonder how much of the brokenness in our world and in our own lives is the result in some way of the anger that we've experienced and felt, even the anger towards ourselves. Jesus experienced that anger all directed toward him, absorbed it, forgave us, and now wants to show us a different way, the way of grace.
can see. 